On a reputable news website, I won't mention the name, I found an article titled, What the Pilgrims Drank on Thanksgiving. Now, I'd heard years ago that one of the main reasons that the Pilgrims pulled into Cape Cod in December of 1620 was because they were out of beer. And it was something that we even discussed in one of my social history seminars during graduate school. And that made complete sense, since we know that small beer was a staple of the 17th century English diet. Water was dodgy. Uh, because of bacteria and protozoan-borne illnesses, it could kill you. And the polyphenols in beer and wine act as an antimicrobial agent. Even at levels as low as 2% alcohol by volume, what is called small beer, it has a sufficient amount of these polyphenols to inhibit any dangerous microbial diseases. The one problem with low ABV beers is that they spoil pretty quickly, so surviving a transatlantic voyage in a sailing ship would be a problem on its own. By the time the Mayflower reached the eastern seaboard, more than likely the beer had all been drank or it had spoiled. So I was pretty sure that this article from 2013 that I read was going to say that beer was what uh, the pilgrims drank at the first Thanksgiving. But no, that's not what this author said. I won't call this uh, writer out, but they claimed that hard apple cider uh, was what the pilgrims drank at the first Thanksgiving. This person, she wrote, and this is a quote, during the middle of this golden age of cider consumption, I don't know why she thought this was the golden age of cider consumption. In 1620, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Several species of apples grew in the area, garland, sweet crab, prairie crab, southern crab, making it likely that the pilgrims brewed their own cider and American-bound English ships would have also provided a steady supply as well. Okay, there's a lot of problems with this statement, and it goes back to my theory of historic myopia which I believe this author is suffering from. First, crab apples and those very few apple species that are native to North America make terrible cider. Now, eventually, apple orchards were planted at Plymouth, but it was the following year that they, that they were planted, and they would have taken many years before they bore fruit in any quantity enough to make cider. There is no record of there being a cider press in the plantation's inventory records, and the one reason that the colony almost collapsed in that first year was because there weren't any relief supplies shipped to them from England. So, there was no steady supply of cider, as the author mentions. But the most reliable sources we have regarding that first Thanksgiving comes from first-hand accounts of two men, both of whom kept journals, and neither man ever mentioned cider in any of his writings. They did mention beer. And the story of those pilgrims is much more fascinating than the mythology that we were taught in elementary school. This is episode 25. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Hello everybody and happy Thanksgiving to all. I uh, hope you're having a great holiday week um, with your family and friends and uh, sharing uh, lots of good food. I know we will be over the next couple of days. I'm still not quite over my sinus infection. 
as you can probably hear in my voice. And I had an interview lined up this week with somebody over the telephone, but because of the holiday stuff, the this person was unable, and we've had to re uh, we've had to reschedule that interview, and that'll be coming up in some weeks to come. I'm not going to tell you who it was, is because I don't want to ruin the surprise. So anyway, I thought this week I would do another redo, redo, of uh, one of my history podcasts. This is the story of Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving, and I think if you're not, if you don't know the facts behind the Pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving. Uh, you're going to find this pretty fascinating. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a long story because you got to get into some background uh, with this story. One of the things I specialized when I was in graduate school on colonial North America and frontier history. And so I did quite a bit of research. Back at one time, I wrote a paper on early English colonies. And so I, I gleaned a lot of the information that I used in that from way, way back when in putting together this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Again, this is history and uh, talk to you on the other end. Bye. I'm Alan Tapman and because no good story ever began with this one time we were eating a salad. This is history, the story of alcohol. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, the elders obtained good report, and through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by God. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and being persuaded of them and embracing them and confessing that they were but strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. Those are the words of William Bradford, a religious and civil leader with the pilgrims who eventually became governor of Plymouth Colony. And it is in that passage that he explains why they happened to come upon this incredible journey that has since captured the imagination and formed the identity of millions who call themselves American. Bradford, as did most of his fellow Plymouth pilgrims, saw themselves and their movement as a continuation of God's command, like that to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, to go forth, create a nation of the chosen, the true believers, the true followers of the faith, and that the reward may not be theirs, but only the promise of a reward in eternity. The pilgrims knew that they were on a journey through this world towards heaven. They didn't know how they were going to get there. They were but humble travelers, pilgrims through this world, led by the hand of God. Every American schoolboy and girl believes they know the story of the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving. They came over on the Mayflower, searching for religious freedom. They came to America, and after a bountiful harvest their first year in the colony, they invited their Indian friends to a great feast where they gave thanks to God. They ate turkey, pumpkin pie, and every year thereafter to give thanks for their new land, for their bounty, for their freedom. And so a feast of thanksgiving was held every year thereafter. 
And almost all of that last statement was either false or a simplification of the truth that is so much deeper. This is a story of one of the most important voyages of Western civilization. The story of a small group of radical thinkers who defied the odds, who, who had they disappeared, no one would have ever thought any different. The English government was happy to be rid of them, and few ever thought that these travelers would ever be heard from again. They were an incredibly unlikely group to be set forth to establish an English outpost in the New World. They weren't adventurers, they weren't soldiers, they weren't particularly interested in making money, as was the case was with most other colonial ventures. They were actually, let's call a spade a spade, religious nuts. And that's how most of the Anglican church of the late 16th and early 17th century saw them. They were true believers who wanted to separate from all previous forms of Christian worship and find purity in man's relationship with God. The odds were against them from the beginning, and despite tragedy and massive setbacks, they did eventually succeed. Ask most people in this country, where does America begin? And most will say, with the pilgrims, the Mayflower, and Plymouth Rock. Now, technically, that's not true. Thirteen years before the establishment of the Plymouth Colony, Jamestown had been founded in Virginia in 1607. But the Virginia Colony had been really, up to that point, an overwhelming disaster. Over the course of a little more than a decade, nearly 8,000 English subjects, not counting slaves, had gone to Virginia to build the colony, but because of disease, exposure, and warfare with the natives, there were only a little more than 1,000 colonists alive and functioning along the shores of Chesapeake Bay in 1620. But it was the story of a small handful of pilgrims, just over a hundred total, half of which did not survive their first year in America, who arrived in Massachusetts in the dead of winter in 1620, and from their story, we have created the quintessential American origin narrative, which we commemorate every year on the fourth Thursday of November with the story of a ship, a rock, and a feast, none of which happened in the manner which we were told as school children, and the entire odyssey almost didn't happen at all. What we truly know about the Plymouth Colony comes primarily from two historical sources that I mentioned at the top of the show, both written by members of the Mayflower's Voyage. Of Plymouth Colony was written by William Bradford and is one of the most important documents on American history ever written, not only for what it contains, but the impact that it has had on this country. The other book is Mort's Relations, a journal of the colonist, written primarily by Edward Winslow, a printer by trade who left his home and his vocation to begin a more godly life in an unknown wilderness. Others, it is believed, including Bradford, contributed sections to Winslow's work. 
Now, there are major differences in the two documents. Winslow's journal was primarily written in mind of the audience in England, of the investors and potential investors in the colony. So, as you can guess, the telling of the colonist's story from his perspective is told in the best possible light. Bradford's work, however, was never published in his lifetime. Bradford labored over his manuscript for more than 20 years. Bits and pieces of writings when he had time away from his duties as governor of the colony. Of Plymouth Plantation is written in the third person. Bradford refers to himself as he and to the pilgrims as they, as if being composed for an audience in the distant future, or, dare I say, as an addendum to the Bible. It's very biblical in its prose and steeped in biblical teachings, especially those of the patriarchs of the Old and the prophets of the New Testaments. He left the work to his sons and heirs upon his death. Sometime before the consolidation of the Plymouth Colony and Massachusetts Bay Colony, going into the province of Massachusetts Bay in 1692, the document was taken to the Old South Meeting House in Boston, where it remained until it disappeared during the American Revolution. Boston at the time had been occupied by the British Army, so it was always assumed that somehow or another they had taken it. The manuscript was not discovered again until it showed up in the Bishop of London's library in the early 1850s. Now, the work was published in 1856, and over the next 40 years, the state of Massachusetts petitioned the British government to return the original manuscript to its rightful place. The Church of England finally conceded that, yes, Massachusetts should have the original document, and in 1897, it was returned to Boston. If not for Bradford's writing, we most certainly would not have remembered the pilgrims as we do, and possibly not at all. He was one of those remarkable men in history who was in the right place at the right time. He was not intended to be the leader of the colony, but because of circumstances, leadership was thrust upon him. He was the father of New England colonial identity. And his book is amazing in not only what it tells, but oddly, what it also omits. So, about beer and the pilgrims. Well, you know, if it, well, the Puritans were, they had a stick up their hoo -ha! and they never drank and they never had fun or anything like that. Well, it's bullpucky. They did. They just, they were very serious about their religion. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But, Yes, they did drink beer, and as we've talked about in previous episodes, everybody drank beer, especially in areas where the water was unsafe to drink, and the pilgrims were no different. But what do these two documents say or don't say about the original premise of this episode? Did the pilgrims stop in Massachusetts to brew beer? Well, before we go to that, we first need to kind of look at the circumstances that brought these people to North America in the first place. In the late 1500s, there was a puritanical movement afoot in the Protestant Church of England. Now, when Henry VIII died, who was the father of the Church of England, his son from his third marriage to Jane Seymour, she died in childbirth, Edward VI, 
He was a sickly boy of ten. He came to the throne. Edward's reign maintained that the Church of England was the religion of state. But when he died only six years later in 1553, his sister, Mary Tudor, the daughter of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, the gal who he divorced, which caused the split between England and Rome to begin with, she came to the throne and she reinstated Catholicism as the religion of England. Now, some of you out there who know your English history, you're saying, hey, what about Lady Jane Grey? And for those of you who don't know the story of Lady Jane Grey, I am going to tell you one of the saddest tales ever in the history of English monarchy. Lady Jane was Henry VIII's niece, the daughter of his sister, and also a Protestant. Now, when 16-year-old Edward was on his deathbed, his ministers drafted a document called My Device for Succession, which declared both Mary and Elizabeth, his half-sisters, of course, Mary was the daughter of Catherine, Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, who lost her head. Anyway, he declared that they were illegitimate and false claimants to the throne because their mothers one, in Catherine's case, had been divorced from the king, and B, in Elizabeth's case, her mother had been found guilty of treason and had been executed. So, Edward named his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, a Protestant, as his successor to the throne. Edward died on July 6, 1553, but the Privy Council, fearing a coup by either Mary or Elizabeth, did not publicly announce the passing of the king for four days. The day before they did make the announcement, on July 9th, Lady Jane was informed that she was to be the queen, which she protested, saying she did not want to be the monarch, but the Privy Council was insistent. On July 10th, she was publicly proclaimed queen and taken to the Tower of London for her security until the coronation ceremony could be held. She was accompanied by her husband, Lord Guilford Dudley. Meanwhile, Mary had been raising an army, along with support from many of the members of the House of Lords, and they marched on London. Realizing the immense support that Mary had not only with the House of Lords, but with the people of England, especially those around London, the Privy Council, as politicians are so wont to do, quickly switched allegiances and proclaimed that Mary would be queen on July 19th. So, in fact, Lady Jane had been the first de facto queen of England for nine days, although she did nothing during her reign. And her story doesn't end there. Since she was already in the tower, supposedly for her safekeeping, Mary ordered that she be kept there along with her husband to await the royal verdict regarding her actions. In September, Mary was declared the rightful Queen of England, France, and Ireland, and Lady Jane was proclaimed to be an usurper and a traitor, although she had nothing to do with the political machinations that had been set forth. Lady Jane Grey was charged with high treason 
as were those who worked to put her on the throne. And then, on February 12th of 1554, by sentence proclaimed by Queen Mary, first Dudley was taken from his chamber to Tower Hill, where he was beheaded. His torso and head were then paraded past Jane's chamber so she could see her husband's lifeless remains. Then she was taken herself out onto the Tower Green, where she was allowed to, and she did confess her sin of treason, fearing for her soul. She was given last rites, and then her head was also taken from her shoulders. And Queen Mary was just getting started. She rounded up any and all who had conspired to keep her from the throne. And over the course of her five-year reign, Mary had 284 people burned alive at the stake. Not hanged, not beheaded. Burned at the stake as traitors to England and as heretics against the Catholic Church. It was this series of executions that earned her the famous name, Bloody Mary. Under penalty of death, Mary also demanded that all of her ministers and members of Parliament also adhere to the Catholic faith. And for most politicians who saw little difference in Catholicism and High Anglicanism, this wasn't any big deal. But it was for those Anglicans who wanted to reform the church. You see, these people had what was for them a very real choice. That today, we don't always see a distinction in this. For example, other than the most radical versions of Christianity, most followers of the religion accept other faiths as equals. Today, the clergy of various denominations work together for the betterment of all in the community. It's considered the right thing to do. But this was not the case in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe. You had two choices. You could adhere to the religion of state, or you could adhere to what you thought was the true faith, being sure that you would receive your reward in the afterlife. But that choice in this world could lead to your death. Between the reign of Henry VIII and Mary I, a new movement began to emerge in the Anglican Church. Calvinist thinking influenced those of the Anglican faith who wanted to make a greater departure from the practices of the Church of Rome. Called Puritanism, it saw an open, unfettered, and flourishing growth during the short reign of Edward VI, and then the movement went underground during Mary's rule, figure out why, with many of the practicing clergy seeking exile in the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland away from the burning stake. But still, they held these Calvinist beliefs. Some were eternally destined to everlasting life. Others were eternally destined to everlasting hell. Predestination, that is, the belief that God has known always what will happen, when it will happen, who it will happen to, he knows who will join him in heaven, and neither works nor faith can change one's destiny, for it has already been sanctioned and foreordained only through God's grace. Those who are not predestined in this life shall forever be damned for their sins, and the true faith of the elect 
that is those who are predestined to be with God eternally. Their faith never fails finally or totally. Only a true believer has everlasting salvation, and only God knows who the true believers are. In other words, you and I couldn't walk around and say, well, they're a believer, they're a believer, because no one knows. And it, it would be arrogant to assume that you did. Only God knows. God's grace is not communicated to all men, no matter what they might do. And it's not in the individual's will or in his power to be saved. That only happens through the grace of God. Now, all of these are pretty radical teachings for the times. Basically, it threatened the power structure of the monarch, in the case of England, or the papacy, in the case of Catholicism. It threatened their power to control the fate of their subjects through state-sponsored religion. Many in the Puritan movement thought that with the death of Queen Mary in 1558 and the ascension of her half-sister Elizabeth, who was a Protestant, that like under Edward, they would be allowed to openly worship in their own fashion without interference from the monarchy. But they were wrong. Elizabeth worried of the threat of a Catholic crusade against heretical England, and therefore sought a Protestant solution that would not offend Catholics too greatly while addressing the desires of the English Protestants. At the beginning of her reign, she said she would not tolerate the more radical Puritans as they were offensive to her Catholic subjects. But by 1593... 30-some-odd years later, at the behest of Queen Elizabeth, Parliament passed the Religion Act and the Popish Recusants Act, which declared that any and all who were worshipping outside the Church of England had three months in which to conform to the doctrine or else be banished from the realm, forfeiting their lands and goods to the crown, with a failure to comply being a capital offense subject to a conviction of treason. These acts were directed primarily against Roman Catholics, who, Elizabeth found out, a number of them had been trying to kill her through her reign. But this also applied to the radical Puritans. Although no Puritans were ever executed under these laws during Queen Elizabeth's reign, they did remain on the books, and it was a constant threat and a source of anxiety to those who followed the puritanical teachings. From this environment emerges a second Puritan movement, a more radical movement that sought not to reform the Church of England, that is, purify it from within, but to leave it entirely. In other words, to separate from the church. These people were known as separatists, and nowhere in England were their numbers stronger than in northern Nottinghamshire, 150 miles from London. There were four key figures from the villages of this county who greatly influenced the movement. Ministers John Robinson in Gainsborough, William Brewster in Scrooby, Richard Clifton at Babworth, and a young man named William Bradford, born in Austerfield in 1590, only three miles from Scrooby. 
Born into a family of yeoman farmers, Bradford's childhood was a tragedy. Nearly everyone in his family died before he reached the age of 12. His father when he was one, his paternal grandfather when he was six, his mother when he was seven, his sister, and maternal grandfather when he was 12. He was sent to live with an uncle, but he became ill and bedridden that same year, unable to work, lonely for having lost all whom he had loved. He was an intelligent boy, and he sought comfort in the Bible, and the scriptures changed him, in which he believed he could see the simplicity and purity of the original Christian values. And he felt that the congregation that he was a part of within the Anglican church was corrupt and was moving away from God rather than toward him. When he became well enough, he went to the village of Babworth where he heard the preachings of radical minister Richard Clifton. He soon after met William Brewster, the Cambridge-educated postmaster and bailiff of Scrooby, and among these men, along with John Robinson, Bradford felt he had found a spiritual home. Every week they would meet in private gatherings in different houses so as to not be discovered. And they would listen to Clifton and Robinson preach of the need to strip all man-made contrivances from worship and only practice that which was found in the scriptures. Bradford wrote years later that nothing made a deeper impact upon him than a line of scripture from the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. In other words, for Christ to be among he and the other separatists, they did not need a bishop, whether it be Anglican or Catholic, but through conviction, prayer, and conversion, it is enough for their Savior to be present. Now, given that interpretation, this is an incredibly radical and revolutionary text which justifies the separatists in their movement away from the high Anglican church. For Bradford, it was the most powerful thing to know that without mediation from others, he could always be with God, especially given that he had lost everything and everyone when he was just a boy. By his 14th birthday, he realized that all he needed was the Bible and others who thought the same as he, and to be with them and to do as God wishes. And given that line of thinking, there is nowhere that he could not go if he followed God's true path. And that is where the journey of the pilgrims really begins. This is also when the real trouble begins for these separatists. Who is the real power behind the church in 1603? It's the monarch. And when you fly in the face of the church and deny its authority over you, you are also flying in the face of the monarch and denying the monarch's authority over you. And that, as we have seen with Henry, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, can be extremely dangerous. And in 1603, guess what? There's a new king. With the death of Elizabeth, her cousin James VI of Scotland is crowned 
James I of England. He's new to the throne. He's new to the court. He wasn't particularly popular with the politicians of the day. He was really only selected as king because he was the closest living kin that Elizabeth had. Everyone else had either been executed or died, or if they were smart, they did somewhere. James immediately let it be known that there would be no welcome for dissenters in his kingdom. He was the head of the church, and that was that, where people had been able to get away with unorthodox practices concerning religion before those days were over. People were required to attend official church services or face the potential of being fined, perhaps as much as 20 pounds per annum, and in today's money, that's about $11,000. If you persisted, you could be jailed. If you even persisted after that, you could be killed. If you gathered in private, unsanctioned groups for religious service, you could be jailed, and these actions were all declared illegal, subversive, and traitorous. Now, I know this got a little heavy on the religious philosophy and everything right here, but I, there's a reason why I wanted to bring this up. First, one of the things that we take for granted here in the United States is the liberties that we live with today, 400 years after the time of the separatists. Now, we're not the only nation in the world that has religious freedom. Many others do. But we were one of the first. The story of the separatists, in part, is one of the reasons that we have the First Amendment to our Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, this also means we have the freedom from per for practicing no religion if we choose. But during the 16th and 17th century, in England and almost all of the European countries, but for one, and I'll get to that in a minute, if you practiced a different religion than that of the state, or you didn't tithe to the religion of the state, or you publicly proclaimed to be against the church of the state, agnostic, atheist, or anything else that wasn't the state religion, you could be executed, and a lot of people were. The second reason I wanted to talk about religion at this point was the children's story, which we are told about the pilgrims, is just that, a children's story. The pilgrims, yes, they wanted religious freedom, so they started their own country. That's what we're told. And I think you can tell it was much, much more than that. They wanted to live. They didn't just want a country. They wanted to live. They wanted to worship as they choose. And so if they were to separate from the Church of England to live and to do as they choose, they would have to leave England. And they looked south and east toward Holland. In 1607, Bradford's mentor, William Brewster, was fined and threatened with imprisonment if he continued to worship outside the sanctioned parameters of the Church of England as dictated by the king. 
and this was the time that the separatists knew it was time to leave England. Holland was a Protestant nation, very open and liberally thinking by the convictions of the day, and heavily opposed to the constraints of Catholicism, and had for years been in conflict with the Catholic nations of France and Spain. The separatists, they decided to go to Holland, but to leave, they would have to get permission from the monarchy, and according to the laws of the day, dissidents would not be given passage from port without permission of the king. On their first attempt to leave, the captain of the ship, whom they had already given money for their passage, he turned them over to authorities for the reward. The next year, in 1608, 16 men, including Bradford, managed to board a Dutch ship in Hull and sail to Holland. The authorities, on learning of the defections, arrested the wives and children of all the men that, had, that escaped, and they threw these women and children in jail. They were soon released when the fines were paid, and over the next year, quietly in small groups of two or three or a little more, they made their way by ship across the North Sea to Amsterdam, where they reunited with their family and friends. Upon hearing of these defections to Holland, James acquiesced. Let them go, he said. If they're happy, fine. We don't need them. Holland is our ally in the wars against the Catholics, and if these separatists want to live there and they're less trouble to us, so be it. And as far as the separatists were concerned, that should have been the end of their journey and the end of this story. But, being immigrants who had been only farmers, now living in a major city, the, the prospects for employment were minimal. Only William Brewster, as far as anyone knows, spoke any Dutch at all. The only jobs they could find were of the most menial task in the textile industry. In 1609, Brewster and Robinson moved their congregation south to the city of Leiden, a university town, which was in the heart of the Netherlands textile mills. They thought they would have a chance at better employment opportunities in Leiden, but only a few did, the rest having to still work in the factories and the textile industry six days a week from dawn until dusk. But for the first time in most of their lives, they were free to worship as they wished according to what they believed to be God's law. But by 1617, almost a decade in Holland, they feared that their children were growing up Dutch. Even though they had left England, they still proudly saw themselves as English. The next year, 1618, rumors began to circulate that the Spanish, with the backing of the papacy, were preparing to invade the Netherlands. England's ambassador to the Dutch warned that the wars were inevitable. Europe was on the brink of what would become known as the Thirty Years' War, a conflict that pitted Protestant Christianity against Roman Catholicism, and nearly every European country would eventually be involved. The separatists in Holland worried that this war to come might actually be the end of the world, and it could bring on the promise of Armageddon, according to the text of, of Revelations. And they feared for the life of their church and its people, so they decided to move again, this time to America. 
And so the planning began. While still in Holland, they looked over maps and charts. They consulted with people that knew the geography of the New World. And they decided that they would settle on land at the mouth of the Hudson River in the northernmost part of the English-claimed lands of Virginia. Now, they first had to get a legal charter from the crown, the English crown, to settle there, and they also had to get permission to immigrate. None of them, as stated before, were adventurers, none were soldiers, none were explorers. They were farmers, and they were religious zealots, and they were naive, and they were open for exploitation. These were not wealthy people. They had a long list of things they didn't know how they were going to cover to make this endeavor work. Who were they going to hire to help them? How were they going to get a ship? Who would be their military officer? Where will we get the money to finance this endeavor? It was going to be expensive and risky, and they had no clue as to what they were going to do once they reached America to repay any money forwarded to them. But then in early 1620, they met Thomas Weston, a broker from London who had heard of their plans and offered to finance them through a group of investors called the Fellowship of Merchant Adventurers. England was behind in the New World game in the early 1600s. Over the previous century, Spain and Portugal had been exploiting Mesoamerica and South America, bringing back tons and tons of gold, silver, and other natural resources. The French had been trading with the natives of Canada over the previous quarter century, bringing back hides and furs, especially that of the beaver, whose felt was treasured for the making of hats prized by the European upper classes. But what had England done? Well, first, they had lost one colony at Roanoke in North Carolina in 1590. Really, they lost it. Over 100 colonists just disappeared without a sign of struggle. A six-year-old colony that had just been abandoned, and no one knew where the inhabitants had gone. The next colony they attempted at Jamestown in 1607 was still there, but other than an export of an agricultural product that, when dried and cured, would be lit and produce a smoke which was drank, as the lexicon of the day called the habit, they had little else than that, and the market for tobacco had yet to be developed in Europe. But there was always the hope that sooner or later in North America, someone somewhere was going to discover gold. And this is what kept the investors and adventurers interested in financing colonization. And this is what Weston promised the separatists. But he was as ignorant as they were regarding what lay in store for them. See, the best time to set sail for North America from Europe at that time was in late winter or early spring. So you would arrive and settle in the spring, build shelter, plant crops, prepare for the next winter. And most people in England mistakenly believed that all of North America had a climate similar to what the reports from Tidewater, Virginia had been. Hot and humid summers with mild winters. So... The separatists are readying themselves in Holland, preparing to make the voyage, and by June, Weston still has not secured a ship for them to cross the Atlantic. Weston also informs them that the investors 
They're insisting on sending non-separatist adventurers, which the pilgrims called the strangers. They wanted them with the expedition to assure in securing the colony and to hasten a return on their investment. This was absolutely galling to Bradford, Brewster, and the rest of them, but if they wanted the money, they had no choice but to go along. On July 22nd, without a word from Weston regarding financing or transport, they sailed on a weathered and beaten ship called the Speedwell across the channel for Southampton, England, leaving Holland behind. But they also left some of the congregation. It had been decided that Robinson would stay with the main body of the group in Leiden until a new settlement had been firmly established in America, and then the others would follow to their new Jerusalem. One of those left behind was Bradford's three-year-old son, who he left with relatives. Most of them knew as they left they would probably never see any of the people who meant the most to them, or they might not. There was a good chance of it. They would probably never see Holland again or their homes in Scrooby and the rest of Nottinghamshire. They were once again separating from everything that they had grown to know. When they arrived in Southampton, to their surprise and joy, Weston had secured a ship to transport them across the Atlantic, a medium-sized 180-ton square-rigged merchant vessel, well-worn and battered from decades of use as a cargo transport ship, running bales of wool from England to the continent and then returning with barrels of wine the Mayflower. They met Captain Christopher Jones and his crew of rough sailing men and the strangers that had been foisted upon them by the investors. So the Mayflower with 90 passengers and the Speedwell with 30 disembarked from Southampton on August 5th of 1620, but the Speedwell began to experience leaking and the two ships pulled in to Dartmouth for repairs. After extensively going over the Speedwell, they once again took sail on August 23rd, but they had traveled only 200 miles beyond Land's End, that's the very far point of Cornwall in England, when the Speedwell began to leak even worse than before, and the expedition turned back and took port at Plymouth. They decided then that the Speedwell was unseaworthy and they abandoned it. They boarded what additional passengers they could from the Speedwell onto the Mayflower, but it was deemed that there was really actually only room for 12 more people, and of those 18 that were left behind of the Separatists, they made their way back to Leiden and to the community of Pastor Robinson. Of the 102 passengers on board the Mayflower, only half of them were the separatists, the other half being the strangers, as insisted upon by the investors. And Captain Jones's crew of 30 sailors, finally, on September 6th of 1620, they left Plymouth with, as Bradford stated, a prosperous wind taking them toward the sunset. But leaving in September was absolutely the worst time of year to be sailing for the New World in the 17th century. 
October and November bring on the first harsh gales of the autumn storms across the North Atlantic, and the coming winter, and fighting the prevailing headwinds out of the west and the Gulf Stream, the Mayflower made an average of only two miles an hour. Combined with the fact that they were undersupplied, we don't actually know what they brought because the cargo manifest never survived. We only know that they began to run low on essential provisions of the voyage. So being undersupplied and add to the fact that the ship was overcrowded, their chances of success were minimal at best and perilous at worst. But on the morning of November 9th, with two passengers already dead and more people sick, the sailors sighted land, bluffs along the horizon shining in the dawn sunlight, the first land they had seen in 65 days. But to add to the illness aboard the ship, there was also disappointment. Captain Jones informed the passengers that the storm had blown the ship off course. They were just off of Cape Cod, 200 miles north of where they were supposed to have arrived. At first, they attempted to sail south towards the Hudson River, but the winds were driving from the south and attempting to push them onto the shoals in some of the most treacherous, treacherous sailing along the North Atlantic coast. Jones finally said, enough. He turned the ship around, sailed around to Cape Cod into a relatively calm Cape Cod Bay, looking for whatever harbor he could find. On November 11th, while anchored in Cape Cod Bay, because they were so far north of the land where they had rights to establish a colony, the strangers had been talking for the previous two days and insisted that they no longer had any obligation to stay with the pilgrims or to help them, and they had made plans to go on their own way once they made landfall. William Brewster drew up a contract called the Mayflower Compact, which outlined the obligations of all of the passengers of the ship and asked each man on board to honor those obligations with his signature. The compact read in part, In the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience." 41 of the 46 male passengers signed the contract. Now, the significance of the Mayflower Compact, it is the first document drawn up in North America that recognizes that the consent of the governed is necessary when making law. And this is no small thing. Granted, all this is really is a contract, but it's one of the first important government documents in the history of British North America. Once the compact had been signed and agreed to, John Carver, the wealthiest member of the expedition, was elected governor of the colony before a single person 
had even set foot upon the New World. And this is where we get to the question of, did the pilgrims have to get off of the Mayflower because they were running low on beer? I'm drinking whiskey tonight because I got a little bit of a sore throat. So anyway, anyway, the short answer to that question is yes, but they did not have to get off to brew more beer. Neither Bradford or Winslow write that in their books, but rather the passengers had to remove themselves from the ship because Captain Jones was worried that he was going to run out of beer, and he knew that he and his crew would need whatever beer was left to return to England, but the passengers, the pilgrims, and the strangers, and the crew still needed to drink. So on that day, they went ashore first to gather wood. That's the 11th of November to get a little scout of Cape Cod. November 15th, led by the expedition's military leader, a stranger, he was not a pilgrim, Miles Standish, the passengers put ashore again on Cape Cod to try to find fresh water to drink, which they did from a creek. And Bradford wrote in his history that the fresh water was as pleasant as wine and beer before. So in other words, they were very thirsty. Winslow writes that at the time of the first going to land that we had some beer, butter, flesh, and other such victuals, but the supplies, he wrote, were growing low. On December 19th, Winslow remarks that the beer is much spent. He also commented that while on board the ship, particularly on Christmas Day, the captain did allow for a bit of beer, but he would not let any of the beer be taken to shore. Bradford also writes that as winter went on and the people became ill, Captain Jones conceded that those sick should have beer to drink, even if it meant he and his crew would have to return with fresh water to drink in their empty beer cask on the way back to England. So, here's what this tells me. One, the story of the pilgrims having to land because they needed to brew more beer is, is bullshit. It's not true. The other things, the other thing is these passages that I've read here tell me that the first winter they either did not have malted grain or were reluctant to take any grain from the stores that they had to brew any beer, having decided that the water that they found, the fresh water, was good enough that they could safely drink it without worrying about it making them sick. And it wasn't the water that was going to make them sick. More than that in a minute. So where did this story of the pilgrims needing to stop to brew beer come from? I'll be honest with you. I couldn't find an answer. It's just another one of those things out there that everybody believes seems to have happened when it didn't. My guess is somebody misinterpreted the reading of these passages written by Bradford and Winslow into thinking that well, that's it. They needed beer. But they that they did. They did need beer, but they didn't have a way to brew any. Apparently not. 
And I could end this week's episode right here. I've answered the question of why did did the pilgrims have to stop to get beer. But you know what? The adventures of these people is just beginning at this point. This is going to be a long episode, but I think it's worth it. When the first party went ashore on November 15th, they spotted a small party of natives along the beach that were looking upon them. But when they tried to pursue them, the natives quickly disappeared into the woods. In the area of Cape Cod, in what is today southeastern Massachusetts, there were a number of indigenous tribes at the time, the Wapanog, the Massachusetts, the Nipmuc, the Narragansett, the Pequot, the Niatic, the Mohegan. Anthropologists and ethno-historians believe that at one time, There may have been as many as 70 villages in the area, and perhaps a population as high as 70,000 people. But in 1616, just four years before the pilgrims arrived, a plague had gone through the tribes, introduced to them by European fishermen. And by the time the pilgrims arrived, just four years later, 50 to 90% of the native population in the area had died, wiped out, leaving an empty wasteland. When the pilgrims went out on their scouting missions, they found clearings and village sites where there were human skeletons scattered everywhere. The plague had been so devastating that there had not been anyone left to take care of the remains. There were still Indians in the area, but being winter, they had moved far inland away from the ocean to more sheltered village sites, but they had left caches of buried corn that the pilgrims found and they took for themselves to eat. A few days later, on December 6th, a foraging party out looking for more food and a proper place to build a winter settlement camped for the night and shortly after sundown they were attacked by a war party of natives firing arrows, which the pilgrims answered with musket fire. No one was injured, but when the sun came up, it was decided that they should look elsewhere for a place to settle. And two days later, on December 8th, nearly a month after they had first sighted land, they came upon a place that they determined would be suitable for their new Jerusalem. It was a clearing with a nice slope down to the harbor and fields above for planting. They named the site Plymouth, not after the last town they had left from England. The pilgrims had no connection to Plymouth at all, but because Captain John Smith of Jamestown, during his adventures and mapping of the New England coast, he'd named the harbor off of Cape Cod Bay Plymouth Harbor as an homage to one of his patrons back in England who was from the the town and port of Plymouth. Oh, and by the way, there wasn't a rock there either. There were lots of rocks along the shore, deposited by retreating glaciers at the end of the last ice age, but Plymouth Rock was a made-up story. Like most of the myths surrounding the pilgrims, it was created as part of our national identity, which we were searching for in the early 1800s. Neither Bradford nor Winslow ever mentioned Plymouth Rock. Now, today there is a rock there, and it's called Plymouth Rock, and it's surrounded by Greek columns proclaiming that this is 
Plymouth Rock, where the Pilgrims landed. One of uh, our earliest tourist destinations. The reason that Plymouth was such a suitable site for settlement is because it had been a settlement before. The Wapanog people had a village there that was perhaps hit harder than any other of the native villages during the plague of 1616, Patuxet. The surrounding natives still alive would have thought the pilgrims were insane to settle on a place where there had been so much death and loss. The scouting party sailed back to the Mayflower to tell the others we have found the perfect site for our settlement. But those on the Mayflower also had news for the returning William Bradford. His 23-year-old wife, Dorothy, destitute, desolate, depressed, had either fallen off the ship into the icy water or she had leaped to her death. Bradford never mentioned this personal tragedy in his history of the colony. The Mayflower had to anchor a mile offshore because Plymouth Harbor wasn't deep enough to pull its draft. So all of the passengers and cargo had to be ferried by rowboat to shore. Late December, winter is coming in, and they begin to build houses, but the work went slowly as the harsh New England winter set in at the end of the month. Already weakened by scurvy, dysentery, pneumonia, tuberculosis, the cold ravaged both the men on the shore working on the shelters and the women and children on board the ship, and exposure began to contribute its toll. Deaths were coming at times two and three a day. By February... There were shelters enough built that those well enough, women and children and men, could move into the buildings, the settlement, while the Mayflower had been converted into a hospital for the sick and the dying. Forty-five of the 102 passengers, as well as a handful of sailors, died over that winter. Now, what's amazing about that number is given how badly they were prepared and supplied, it's amazing that they all didn't perish. By March 1st, only seven houses out of the Plan 19 had been built, along with four common buildings and five platforms for cannons had strategically been placed around the perimeter of the settlement. Bradford, in his writings, doesn't document the deaths or the burials of the dead. Winslow, he does not either directly address those deaths over that first winter, but he does mention people leaving them, putting them in great sorrow and departing their numbers. They buried the bodies at night so the natives could not see how many had died. And if they had known the loss of of the numbers of English and how weak they were. The Wapanog, the Massachusetts, the Narragansett, they could have easily wiped out this settlement. On Friday, March 16th, a native man walked out of the woods into the village wearing nothing but a loincloth and carrying a bow. He greeted them in English. Hail, Englishman! Told them that his name was Samoset. He had learned English from the fishermen and traders who had come ashore to trade with his tribe further north in Maine. He asked for beer, 
but Winslow writes that at the time they had none, and they gave him water instead. He told them that where they were living had once been a village called Patuxet, and that one of the Sachem, or chiefs of the Wapanog people, a man named Massasoit, wouldn't like to meet with them and possibly form an alliance. Four days later, Samosot returned with Massasoit, a group of warriors, and another man named Tusquantum, the English called Squanto, who was the only living person who had ever once lived in Patuxet. But Massasoit and Tusquantum were wary of the English. Massasoit's people had been attacked by English adventurers before, and Tusquantum, he had been abducted by the English seven years earlier, but had, been, had returned as a guide for another English adventurer's party, and he managed to escape and now lived as a guest among Massasoit's people. An agreement was made between the two peoples, with Tusquantum and Samosat interpreting. They agreed to aid each other into protection if the other would ever come under attack from another tribe, and not to harm the other's people. It was also agreed that Tusquantum would stay to assist the struggling settlers with establishing their colony. Now, the obvious benefits to the English are plain to see. They barely survived through that first winter. Their numbers were devastated, and without the help of the Wapanog, they could easily be wiped out, if not by disease, starvation, or exposure, an attack from the Narragansett or Massachusetts tribes. Now, the Wapanog, they were also weakened by the plague from just five years before, and the Narragansett were in a position to wipe them out and take their lands. Ironically, the only reason that Tusquantum survived the plague that destroyed Patuxet is because he had been abducted two years before the sickness had arrived. And when he returned, he was the sole survivor of that community. On April 5th, the pilgrims gathered on the shore of Plymouth Harbor to watch the Mayflower set sail back to England with an empty hold and a severely depleted crew. That was the last voyage that the Mayflower would ever take. The pilgrims' only anchor and lifeline was gone back to England. Within the year, Captain Jones had died, and two years later, while moored on the Thames River, rotting away, the Mayflower, one of the most important ships in the history of America, was sold for scrap. That year, since 1621, the spring plantings went well, especially with Tusquantum's guidance. He showed the colonists how to plant corn in mounds, using fish as a fertilizer, although the Europeans knew about using fish as a fertilizer. The only reason they didn't so much anymore is they had an abundance of manure from livestock, something the Indians didn't have. Now, once the corn emerged, lima beans and squash would be planted in the same mounds, and the three crops worked very well together. The beans used the corn stalks as, uh, as stakes for the vines to climb, and the spreading ground vines of the squash helped hold in moisture around all of the plants. During the April plantings, tragedy struck the colony again. Governor John Carver, who was helping in the fields, being, became ill, complaining of a headache. He laid down, and within a few hours, he slipped into a coma and died 
and soon afterward, William Bradford was elected as the second governor of the Plymouth Plantation. Through the summer, the pilgrims continued to build their homes. They tended to their crops, and they fished in the bay for cod and sea bass. A party led by Winslow, along with Stephen Hopkins, one of the strangers, a man-at-arms, they made visits to Massasoit's village, 40 miles to the west, to trade and cement their alliance and to make reparations for the raiding of the Wapanog corn stores from the previous winter. Autumn began to fall, and by October they had completed seven sturdy houses and four common buildings, and they were solidly prepared with shelter for the coming winter. The harvest had been abundant, and the barley crop had succeeded, because Winslow mentions in a letter from December of 1621 that by November they had cask of beer laid aside. On November 9th, another ship arrives with more pilgrims and strangers, as well as supplies sent by the investors, nearly doubling the size of the colony. In the same letter, Winslow also mentioned that they had gathered to celebrate and enjoy the fruits of their labor. No one at the time called the celebration Thanksgiving. Bradford doesn't even mention it in his history of the colony. And the only reason that we even know that it happened was because of a long paragraph that Winslow had included in one of his letters back to England. We set the last spring some 20 acres of Indian corn and sowed some six acres of barley and peas. That was what they called beans. And according to the manner of the Indians, we manured our ground with herrings, or rather shads, which we have in a great abundance, and take with great ease at our doors. Our corn did prove well, and God be praised, we had good increase of Indian corn, and our barley indifferent good, but our peas not worth the gathering, for we feared that they were too late sown. They came up very well and blossom, but the sun parched them in the blossom. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that so we might after a more special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians came amongst us, among the rest their greatest King Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation, and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain, and others." And although it be not always so plentiful, it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partake of our plenty. We have found the Indians very faithful in their covenant of peace with us, very loving and ready to pleasure us. We often go to them, and they come to us. And that's it, folks. That's all we know about the first Thanksgiving, quote, unquote. Some Indians just showed up, and they brought in some venison, which was cooked with what the English had. They played some games, and everything else that we know about Thanksgiving has just been added over the years. 
There wouldn't have been any mashed potatoes. Potatoes were not yet a common vegetable in North America. There wasn't any pumpkin pie because they didn't have a lot of flour and sugar to make pie. We don't know if there was turkey. We know there was some fowl. They mentioned that. But that could have been ducks or geese or grouse or who knows. And there is no mention of any other Thanksgiving being held in Winslow or Bradford's accounts at all. And they don't even call this Thanksgiving. So how did this happen? How did we get Thanksgiving out of what I have just told you over the last hour or so? 240-some years after this event that Edward Winslow wrote down, this little get-together of the pilgrims and the Wapanog was recast into a greater piece of the American identity as one of our defining moments in our history. It was on the eve of the Civil War, and a bitter debate was emerging about whether the founding of this country lie with the slaveholders of Virginia or the Puritans of New England. And in 1856... As I said earlier in the podcast, Bradford's Journal of Plymouth Plantation was published in Boston, and it awakened a pre-Civil War love affair with the pilgrims across the northern states just before the beginning of the bloodiest war in American history. Now, shortly after the Union victory at Gettysburg in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that the last Thursday in November would from thereafter be a national day of thanksgiving in honor of the founding Pilgrim Fathers, and with the stroke of a pen, the president had sealed the story of the Plymouth Colony as being the birthplace of America. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about abundance and tolerance and alliances and people coming together to be thankful for their blessings bestowed upon them by their creator. But the true meaning, if you look beyond all of that fluff that's been added, the true meaning of the story is lost to most of us. These people, these English colonists and the Wapanogs, if they were thankful for anything on that day in Plymouth Colony in 1621. If they were thankful for anything, it was that they survived. Very easily, that could have never happened for either one of those groups. At the time, they were coming out of a terrible period of mourning and grief and loss. But we today don't think about what they lost or what they sacrificed. We think about what they gained, or actually, we think about what we've gained because of them. In December of 1621, rumors began abounding that the Narragansett and the Massachusetts tribe were going to attack the pilgrims. A defensive wall was built around the settlement. The next February, a splinter group of Wapanog attacked Massasoit and his people, and Miles Standish came to Massasoit's 
relief, leading a body of pilgrims against the enemies and destroying Massasoit's rebels. In 1622, a new colony was established 25 miles north of Plymouth. It was a trading colony. It was also set up by the same investment group that had sponsored Plymouth. Massasoit had heard word that the Massachusetts were planning to attack this new outpost, and he warned the Plymouth colony. And again, Captain Miles Standish, he took action, and he went north to this new colony. And he convinced the Massachusetts chief, Wittemwamit, to come to the post, and they would have a parlay. And once they got Wittemwamit into the post behind locked doors. They killed him. They cut off his head. They put it on a pike. They took it back to Plymouth, where it was placed atop the blockhouse, where it remained for many, many years as a warning to all of the natives not to talk with the colonists. Massasoit saw this move as great strength on the part of the English, and he and the Wapanogs remained loyal to the Plymouth Colony, and later the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and all of the English settlements of New England during the Seychelles' lifetime. In 1646, Edward Winslow returned to England to fight with Oliver Cromwell in the English Civil War. Winslow never returned to Plymouth, and he died at sea in 1655. William Bradford, who had been governor of the Plymouth Colony for 31 of the 37 years he had lived in the New World, he died in 1657. He was buried on the summit of Burial Hill near his mentor and friend, William Brewster, it was only four years later, in 1661, that his friend and ally for nearly 40 years, possibly the one man who did more for the success of the English in New England, Massasoit, Sachem of the Wapanog. He died peacefully in his village. By 1675, 18 years after Bradford's death, there were more than 70,000 English settlers living in 110 towns along the New England coast. At that same time, there were fewer than 20,000 natives living in New England. And the Wapanog, well, there were only about 1,000 of them left by this time. And that year, Metacom, the son of Massasoit, whom the English called King Philip, he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he saw the end of the natives and their way of life and the end of their lands in New England. And despite all that his father had done for the English, he saw that the natives' days were numbered. He led an army of united native tribes against the English in an attempt to push the colonists out of their ancestral lands before their world was completely devastated. King Philip lost that war. He was defeated. His head was cut off and it was stuck on a pike 
above the blockhouse in Plymouth. The governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, upon hearing the defeat of King Philip, officially declared a day of thanksgiving throughout the colony. Today, most Native Americans consider Thanksgiving not a day of thankfulness, but a day of mourning. You've been listening to The Bruise Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebruisetraveler.com. Cheers. Thanks again, folks, for listening. Please check us out over on Facebook at The Bruise Traveler Podcast. And go over to iTunes, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, glowing review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Bruise Traveler Podcast. The soundtrack for The Bruise Traveler is generously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. Check out what's going on with them at GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So if I don't run into you at your favorite tap room, I might see you down at the pub. I am feeling better. Remember, drink locally, think globally. Take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. Merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. And so long.
I celebrated Thanksgiving the old-fashioned way. I invited everyone in my neighborhood to my house. We had an enormous feast, and then I killed them and took their land. John Stewart, comedian, satirist, political commentator, born November 28, 1962, in New York City. <laughs> 